G'day and welcome back to the Satchel and Adam show where it's Adam and I's pseudo job to um, interview really interesting people and today we have Matt Allen on the show. Cool. So I'm not going to say everything Matt has done because he's done too much. I was scrolling through his LinkedIn over the past couple of days and it literally takes quite a while to get to the bottom of it. Um, so I will say is that he has founded a bunch of companies. He's a technical person. He knows how to program. Um, and he's also invested in a number of companies along the way. So I think it's like 15, 20 plus. And I was doing a couple of calculations of your IRR for your angel investing. And it came in at like 53% over the last seven years and like that's bloody good um but aside from that he's also just started a venture capital firm called tractor ventures not a venture capital. sorry sorry <laughs> i wasn't meant to say venture capital okay so he started an early stage investment firm which has a unique model of revenue-based financing for startups and that's so, why we're not allowed to say venture it's capital, not so quite venture capital but it's a little bit different um but we're very glad and grateful to have you on the show because we think you're bringing a lot of unique perspectives and welcome Thanks. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah. And Matt, we kind of like to start off our podcast by asking our guests kind of a weird question or something to get them vulnerable. And I noticed when you're leaning back there that you have a tattoo on your arm that says, what's next? Um, so what's, what's that all about? Yeah, it's, um, it, it was uh, a part of my life when I just turned 40. Um, I'd been through you know, a couple of startups and a couple of um, business um, uh, interactions, you know, with um, some business partners, and what I realised is that I um I like to do um like to, like to solve problems, and um quite often getting to the point where um it's going quite well um happens pretty quickly, um but it turns out that I'm not really the master craftsman, um and it took me about forty years to figure that out. So so I've I've been around people who will um you know sharpen the sword and, and sort of eke out that last couple of percent out of, you know, becoming the expert and the best in what they do. Um, I've sort of spent way too much time trying to do that and realize it just doesn't work for me. So um, you know, I'm very much a, a zero to a zero to one kind of guy rather than a one to 10 kind of guy. Um, and it's take, it took me that long to figure out that um, by forcing myself to, you know, get really, really polished on the edges is just not not the best outcome for me. So what's next is two things. It makes me think about whether I'm working on the right thing at the moment at a macro level. And on a micro level, it just stops procrastination. So, um, you know, I've realized I've been in some pretty intense jobs that have a, um, a lot of inbound things. When I was working on the startup team at Amazon, just about every single founder wanted to talk to me because I had free credits and advice and all kinds of things I could do. And, and uh, that was just, you know, if you didn't look at your email for a couple of hours, it exploded. Um, and so on the macro level, I need to be really clear with myself that I'm working on the right stuff at the right time. In the micro level, I need to just get on with it sometimes. So, um, but you know, it, 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 the decade prior to that was, was me, you know, trying to force myself down the, the rabbit hole, which I just shouldn't have done. Can I ask, was there a particular moment that had made you have that realization that you should say what's next instead of just polishing yourself a hundred percent on a specific thing? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I spent 15 years as a software developer um, and I call myself an accidental software developer. I taught myself to code, um, you know, and mostly for, for the web when there was nowhere to learn in the early, in the late nineties, um, there was a lot of, copying and pasting source code and trying to figure out how it worked. Um, 
you know, and that was a, you know, as a software developer, you have a certain level of attention to detail you have to have, and, you know, and you're down at the, the micro level of, of building software. Um, and it was, um, it's sort of about halfway through that career. There was a few times when the people I was working with were just like, Matt, can you just like, everyone else is building these beautiful crafting, these beautiful things, but we just got to get some shit done. Can you just get some shit done for us? Because like, we've got to pay some bills. So there's a few periods of that where it was like, yeah, cool. I'm, just you know, I just get stuff done. So I think um, sitting there and eking out the the final last little bit is not is not really what I do. So it's very much in the the sort of starting from scratch, getting the whole thing moving, and then um you know I I spend a lot of time in business now. So I sort of was a technologist that moved into a business a business guy, um and for me that's very much about putting deals together and sort of structuring things at a macro level, you know. I've now realized and even in Tractor uh, that it's all about the people around me. So um, it's, it's being very aware that where I stop and where I start and there's only a few things I can do. I can do it pretty well, but the rest of the stuff um, I really need some help with. Um, and it's kind of being vulnerable enough to say, I just, that's like, I, I don't do that very well. Today was a good example. You know, we, we had a legal document come back with a few changes from one of our, um, you know, next investee companies. And it's like, what do you think? I'm like, I, I don't know. Like, this is not necessarily my skill set. I've got lawyers for that. I've got operations people. So like, why do we ask the right people the question? And, and, you know, you have to be able to say, I, I just don't, I don't know. And there's so much stuff I don't know. And I just got comfortable by saying that. Yeah, I think that's some great self-awareness because yeah. we have a lot of guests that come on and tell us that our generation is, has too much instant gratification and we don't work on problems long enough. We don't see them through. But I think there's a lot of us that maybe our best skill set is from going zero to one. Um, just before we move on from that, I was going to ask you, what in particular do you think makes you so good at identifying opportunities and going from zero to one? Because for a lot of people, that's the hardest part and it takes a big degree of creativity and initiative. Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, a lot of the, the investors use the word conviction, you know, so like a lot of the stuff I've done has been for other people's things. So as an investor, you know, I'm backing other people. Um, all of my startups were other people's ideas that I just happened to be the technologist and, and building um, and building the idea. So um, I guess it's that sort of cool. Someone's come up with an idea. I'll muck in and, you know, start the whole process and get the whole thing moving. And then we want to put, build, put some other people around us to get it going. Um, so I don't have a problem with that. I guess it's a, a, a um, very comfortable um, with uh, not much information. You know, I'm, I'm happy to make sort of decisions when things still look a bit fuzzy and then figure them out as we go along. And I think a lot of people need a little bit more clarity around direction. Um, I actually work the opposite way where I'm happy to create something out of, out of nothing, whether it be code or whether it be a business or whatever. And, and Tractive Edge is actually the first business that I've been, it's been my idea with my execution and, and that I've built a team of people around me to specifically plug the holes that I know that I've got, um, which is a, it, just a delight of a thing to do. Um, we seem to have got it right and um, it's, it's exciting. Yeah, I, I can't wait to get into Tractor Ventures and talk about that sort of new uh, model of fi financing, but maybe we'll unwind the tape a bit first. And I'd love to know what brought you into the world of technology first. So you said that you taught yourself to code in the 90s. Uh, I'd love to know how that all started and where was your inspiration? I um, 
you know, having getting computers in in primary school and high school really um, dialing up to the dialing up to the internet, um, you know, late at night because my parents it's the only time they let me use the phone the phone line. Um, so I'm from New South Wales. I grew up in in Kasula in Southwest Sydney, um, not far from where you guys are right now. And um, I actually did three computers in the HSC for the very time they introduced the very first time they introduced it. So um, in 1994, I was in year 11. And it was like, cool, three in computers. I'm going to do that. That sounds like a great idea. I was the only person to build in my grade. And all I did was go to the library, dial up the internet and build websites. Um, I can't even remember doing a test. I think I built some, built a piece of software of some description, but I passed it and passed it well. Um, but I literally didn't like the teacher didn't talk to me. I just did things on the internet. So, and that was, you know, in the, in the mid nineties, the web was sort of brand new. Um, it was, you know, browsers were just a thing before that it was all very text-based. So it was a thing that was forming up, you know, literally in front of my eyes. Um, I, you know, managed to figure out that, oh, I, this is, this is, I can do 300 computers and just go build websites and, and figure out the web, which was convenient. Um, and then, uh, from that point on, um, I, after school, um, a friend of mine and I were just sort of doing sort of general IT stuff. We got a job at a company called OneTel, which was part of OneNet, which used to be owned by Optus. It was a, um, it was like a, a telco with a, with an ISP. So we're doing customer support there. And then I started um, building building websites for um, for their customers. You know, the B two B customers was like we need a website. So I just started building websites. Got a job at an agency in 1998. I was going to say built out some of the websites for like McDonald's.com.au and Vodafone and the Olympics and all these amazing like brands because there just wasn't very many agencies back then. And I was the third developer. And was, it, was there an inclination for you to study computer science in a more formal setting at like university or did you, were you too good for the university? It seems like you're in an amazing. Uh, so I, I, um, I, I did a semester at Wollongong Uni because um, it was a, you know, drive Southwest from, from, from Liverpool. Um, and I did business computers and I actually enjoyed um, some of the stuff that I hated at high school. I enjoyed at uni, but it got to the point where, you know, they're trying to show me how to use a mouse and <laughs> click spreadsheet, spreadsheets and stuff. And I'm just like, come on, this is, this, this um, feels like the theory that I already understand. And I've got the practical, the practical side of it. And, you know, I've, I've always um, struggled with tertiary education because of that. And, you know, having worked in the technology industry where it feels like a CS degree um, is, you know, important to get some fundamentals, but the actual fundamentals you get of that degree in your real life as a high level software developer, when I say high level, I mean, you know, building for the web, building for apps, you know, there's very, there's not much of that stuff that you need on a daily basis. And there's none of it you can't find on demand, you know, and then you got the other end of the scale, which is TAFE or, or, you know, today modern sort of web courses and stuff where you can kind of copy and paste your way to a deployed app, but you won't know why. So, you know, uni gives you the why, which you don't, it's nice to know, but you don't really need, need to have it on a daily basis. The modern sort of software development courses will sort of show you the how but there's this Venn diagram in the middle where you're kind of, you know, working in a software team. None of them tell you how to work in a software team. None of them tell you, you know, how to use the tooling around, how to, you know, how to use the tooling in a team, you know, how you do pull requests and all the things you do when you're building on a team of people. So I've, I always struggled that, especially back then, it felt like the lag between the things I'm learning, which is on the web on the cutting edge, and the things that tertiary education had to tell me, there was a big spread 
and it was felt like it was like at that time it was getting much wider, much faster, and I just didn't feel like I was going to use my time. Wow. It yeah. seems like you're sorry, sorry uni guys. <laughs> no, no, it's good. I think that's a lot of self awareness and just staying on your sort of early career in technology. Um, what sort of skills do you feel like you gained and how your sort of way of thinking um, developed? Because me and Sachin are very interested in how people in different industries um, and sort of different settings have to learn to think differently, create mental models, um, etc. So I'd love your perspective on that. Yeah, as a, um, you know, being a self-taught technologist um, uh, with a with a business bent. So, I, like, I remember at the end of high school, I decided I, I just wanted to be a business guy. I didn't even know what a business guy was. I think once I met someone on the internet, drove over to, like, Bondi, had a coffee with him, and he was just a business guy, and he was telling me about business thing. I can't remember. I can remember the coffee. I can't remember what we spoke about. Actually, there's one thing I do remember. He said, um, you know, I, I said... You guys are going to laugh at this. There was um, we were moving from analog modems that did thirty three point six kilobits per second speed yeah. to digital modems that did fifty six kilobits per second. And I'm like, are you are you are you excited about the you know the new bandwidth we're going to get? And he said, it doesn't matter the size of the bandwidth, the content always fills the bandwidth, right? So you know, I've got gigabit fiber to my home now, and we can max it out as a family by pulling enough content all at once, right? You've got kids gaming, got Netflix all over the place, and it's full. So like, it doesn't matter the size of the pipe, the content grows to fill it. And that was one thing I remember from that conversation. So back to your question about mental models. Um, I think being a technologist with a business, with a business bent, which is, you know, understanding that technology for technology's sake is really useful. Um, it needs to be have, it's almost applied, you know, and always back to our, you know, university versus taste stuff, you know, theoretical versus applied. I think the applied part of it is, is where I live, the spot where I live that the crossover between I can nerd out and build anything. Um, and I've shown, shown that I can do that. But, you know, if you're building something and nobody uses it, what's the point? Um, and then you got the other, you're coming down, like coming top down from the, like the customer's got a problem to solve and not having any clue whatsoever on how that is going to be going, what the technology can and can't do and can't, glue the bits together, at least at a high level in your head. Uh, I would be frustrated if I couldn't, you know, do either of these things. So I, I guess I just, I guess that's where I've landed in life where I'm able to quickly synthesize a tech, not from a technological point of view, plus the business point of view. And maybe that sort of gives me a little bit of inside edge when it comes to, especially, you know, investing in other people's companies. I, I quick synthesis of ideas um, seems to be a, a skill that's useful in this situation. Yeah, I think that's really important because something I've noticed anecdotally is that the people I think amongst my friend groups are going to build the best companies are ones that study business and computer science. Because often I think in Australia, in the um, computer science ecosystem, a lot of the people I notice aren't, don't have that kind of same ambition that business students usually do to they build a company. They have the EQ as well. Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a big point as well. But then obviously the business students don't have the skills to build the company. So that kind of sweet spot in the middle is I think something really important. And I think they do it better in the States. It seems like the CS kids over there are a little bit more inclined to build stuff, probably with um, closer proximity to Silicon Valley um, and having those kind of um, mentors. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, there's still a lot of technologists, especially like, you know, the lower, the lower level tech you're building, you know, the, the harder the, the, the invention side of it rather than the implementation side of it. And then, you know, you should always understand the problem you're solving, you know, from, you know, the customer all the way back. But, you know, you can't expect someone building 
a really technical machine learning model, you know, that is doing a bunch of mathematical, it's basically a bunch of math on a bunch of data with a bunch of code to also be, you know, understanding that, you know, the UX, that why that button behaves that way and why that, you know, why you don't, why you conform to the way that Apple does things. Mm. It's a big spread from the thing you use on your phone in your hand to some hardcore, you know, machine learning models. So like everybody needs to have empathy for the journey of the customer, but I, you know, the, de- the degrees of which depends where you sit in the, the, the spectrum, I guess. Mm. So after your early career in technology, how did you make it into the world of angel investing? Um, so after sort of 15 or so years of software development, I decided that, um, I was kind of jack of coding and I decided to go post-technical, which is um, quite often used as a derogatory term um, um, amongst technologists. It's like, oh, you became a manager, right? You're post-technical now. Like you don't, you don't, you don't actually do anything technical. Um, but I flipped up into a technical recruiting role. So a friend of mine, Steve, runs a company called Look Ahead Search um, based in Sydney. And I, you know, had a chat with him and said, I, I think I could do what you do. You know, I like people. I, I've always liked helping people. And you know, the flywheel had a lot of energy put in it because I'm, I'm just a bit of a natural connector. Um, so, you know, if somebody wants something, I know somebody who can do that. I'll, you know, always double opt in, make sure they're cool with it and then push out a connection and get out of the way. Um, you know, I did that for years and years and years and didn't really expect anything in return. And turns out that that's a really good skill set when you're trying to find great people, find great jobs. Um, and I, I guess, um, you know, that, that, I talk about that being like the best and worst times of my life. So the best part was, you know, I was a senior technologist by that time. I was the president of Ruby Australia. Um, you know, I, I was sort of quite well known in, in the Ruby and JavaScript scenes because that's that's the code we were writing. Um, and then I moved into this, tech, into this tech recruiting role, which allowed me to have conversations with CEOs and CTOs and, you know, senior leadership around the problems they're solving, what their team looks like, who they're looking for, um, and then be able to turn back around to all my mates who are software developers and go, what are you working on? You know, are you bored? Like what's, you know, what would, if you, if you, you tell me what you want to do next, what it would look like? And then, you know, basically run information arbitrage and connect the two people up, go, you know, you should go work over there. And um, so that sort of got me to a point where um, I, I quickly became a partner of the company, moved to Melbourne 2014 um, and started and built a team here. I had four people working for me um, at the height of that. Um, that allowed me to generate some free-flowing cash, which allowed me to, um, you know, start investing in, in Angel um, and early-stage tech investing. And it started off with just some mates that I knew who were running businesses who were raising capital, so I gave them some money. Like, it wasn't anything more than that. Um, turns out that um, the first two of the three, the two or three of them that I've invested in have sort of exited now, and that's super convenient, um, and that's great. <laughs> It seems like it was a very natural progression for you. Like you haven't really forced anything. You kind of, it seemed like you had coding written in your blood from a young age. And then it's just kind of progressed to this, as you say, post-technical kind of time in your life. Um, before we go to Tractor, I think it'd be really interesting to understand your process of analyzing a potential angel investment and what you look for both in a company and a founder. Yeah, it's not as technical as you think it is. Um, so there is some sort of, um, so it's all for me, especially at early stage, it's all about the people and the problem. So everything else is variables, right? The problem is probably going to stay relatively constant. Um, the people will hopefully grow into the roles that they're carving out for themselves. 
Um, and everything else is variable. So the rest of the teams are variable. The amount of capital they need is variable. The solution is always variable. The solution is never, is never you know, super well defined early and it always wobbles around and, 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 and lands where it needs to land. So, you know, the problem is something that um, initially a lot of the problems that I like to invest into were problems that I understood. So there was a lot of dev tools, you know, software developers. I had a natural affinity to be able to talk to a software developer founder because they're explaining things that happen in the software development lifecycle that if you're, a, if you're an investor that's come out of finance or, or some other background, you're like, is that a real problem? You know, and I'm sitting there going, well, I placed seven people into REA last month. I know exactly how realestate.com.au organize their teams and what technology they use and some of the friction points in there. And you come to me and say, I've got one that solves that. You're like, oh, okay, let's go. You know, like it, it's that sort of, uh, I guess, uh, short leap. I don't have to take a leap of faith because I get that bit where a lot of other um, investors might have to take a leap of faith that, oh, I, uh, is that a real problem? I, I'll have to go and figure that out. Is there any other kind of validation metrics you look from apart from kind of your own understanding and your kind of network's understanding of the problem? Uh, no, I mean, like I make a lot of assumptions about that stuff, you know, like, I, I mean, if a founder's good, they're able to articulate what the problem is and they'll be able to articulate clear enough, concise enough and quick enough that, it's like, cool, I can understand. I can kind of squint and see that that's a big problem for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and then it's just the people. Like, it's, it's, I spent enough time with them to realize that they're people, they, they do what they say they're going to do. You know, they're, they're resp- responsive as they need to be. And I, I get to an element of trust where I write a check that I write lots of small checks. So, you know, no single check is, you know, I'm not sweating it as I hand it over a lot of the time. And I will quite often... Uh, follow on with a bigger check if, if it turns out that's the way it goes um but um that's kind of it it's like spend enough time with them to realize that they are who they say that they are and they're doing what they say they're going to do um and you know is their affinity with the problem really connected so you know I, i've given this example before i'll give it to you guys it's really really um it's probably poignant for you guys you know being in uni so every time you do a hackathon at uni or every time i've been around like the uni like let's do problem solving thing everyone needs to solve the problem of parking at uni like parking is a shit show like it's expensive and it's hard to find we need to really solve this problem and i'm just like no you don't because you you care about it today and when you graduate next year you don't care about it like it's just it just nobody cares nobody cares long enough to make a thing out of it right like it's just like but it's the thing that's it's the pain that people feel at 9 28 when the lecture starts at 9 30 and they still haven't found a spot to park right like it's like it's acute and forefront pain but it's a problem that's a weird problem and the people don't really care, care about it now but it's not like as soon as you don't have to park that you don't give a shit right so it's a really good example of of um the problem like a, a, a it looks like a big problem it looks like these people are into it but they're not i guarantee they're not no one cares um where then you know so a lot of my founders are actually quite um you know from an age perspective they're, they're not young people the reason being is that this problem has been part of their life for a long time and they can very clearly articulate it and they've seen it manifest several times across their career and they're like i'm sick of this problem i'm really going to solve it and i've got to solve it now and that's a really good indicator for me which is interesting there's a bunch of people who would prefer to back a founder that you know comes sideways to a problem completely outside of scope doesn't really understand it but sort of has an inkling they're going to solve it and then being out of industry is actually why they solve it rather than being in industry but yeah i like the ones that really really like their problems oh 
So a bit further down the track after your start in angel investing, you went on to found Tract Ventures, um, mm. which is a very unique uh, model of financing. So it would be really interesting if you could sort of explain that and also explain the problem about why you decided on this mode of financing. Because me and Sachin often hear time to time that there are problems with VC um, and the way they operate. So it would be cool getting your perspective on that. Yeah, sure. So, um, so Tractor Ventures is a um, revenue-based investment company. So we effectively do um, finance that isn't not equity-based into technology companies. And the problem we're solving, um, I saw a lot when I was at Amazon on the startup and the venture capital team at AWS. So, you know, I worked with all the VCs, but I also spoke to thousands of startups over several years and around the world. And, you know, not every technology company um, is compatible with venture, cap venture capital. You know, and, and I love venture. I'm, I'm an angel investor. I'm an LP in three funds. Um, so, like, I completely understand and appreciate what venture capital does for the right type of company. But the VCs themselves will tell you that they'll, they'll speak to 100 founders and invest in one, or maybe two, right? It's a very small amount of people. So, you know, it feels like up until recently that it's like, well, if you're one of the 98 that didn't get invested in, then, you know, you're not important and you're not worthwhile and your company won't do anything. And I, I just don't think that's true, to be completely. I mean, there might be 50 out of the 100 who are unbackable for one reason or another, you know? It could be the founders, could be the problem, could be whatever, right? But out of the rest of the leftover, there's some really potentially solid business in there that are never going to be venture capital scale. So there's two types of founders that we back in, in, in Tractor Ventures. One is a bootstrap founder who just purely has no interest in doing venture. You know, venture capital is kind of two things. It's a bunch of my friends who are really smart people who are super curious and, and, and they love sort of thinking about this stuff. But it's a financial um, mechanism and vehicle that has you know, very, very clear expectations on what success looks like. And if you don't hit them, or it looks like you're not going to hit them, like that becomes an awkward situation for everybody, including the VCs, right? So they don't want to really invest in you unless you're going to go off and, you know, earn them a very large multiple on the money they put in. So they're quite picky about who they put in. And if, they, if you do get in there, then, you know, you're going to have to keep performing really, really, really well for that to be successful and for them to keep funding you. Um, so these other companies that, that aren't on that trajectory, um, there's sort of two types of founders. There's ones who would just choose to not do that, even though they might be able to It'd be a really good, solid company. They just don't want to take it or that they, um, they are um, backed by angels and that they're just not ready to take it yet. They need to, they've got a running business, they've got a machine that's working, there's revenue being generated, but they're growing nice, but they're not growing ridiculous. And if you're going ridiculous, then the VCs will throw the term sheets at you because that's that's exactly what they want. If you're growing really, really, if you're growing well, but you know, you're doing 100% year on year, but not 200% year on year or 300% year on year, you know, if you, that, then that's, a, that's not necessarily, especially in Australia, not necessarily something where you'll get a bunch of offers from a bunch of venture people to help you. Um, and our favorite term at Tractor is optionality for founders. So we believe that if we can give you some capital that's aligned with your definition of success, and then you can either want to do one of three things. You can run a profitable company if you want. Um, you can raise venture down the track if you want, or you can even sell it. And, you know, if it turns out that if you get up to a couple of million or three or $4 million in ARR and you own 90 or plus percent of the company, 
you know, that could be a, that's a life changing event for anyone I know, not anyone, most of the people I know, right. Would be, damn it. I've just taken $10 million and I'm however old, like that's really, that's really real. The challenge is of course, if you bring a bunch of other people onto your share registry that, you know, have different definitions of success, like you may not be able to take that option if it comes along. Um, and, or maybe, you know, it may not align with everybody. So if you can, if you can keep optionality in your back pocket for as long as you possibly can as a founder, I think you get to choose the, your definition of success and track ventures is here to basically do revenue based financing, which is a loan that is paid back with a 5% share of your revenue until we get to an agreed upfront fixed multiple. So it could be a one and a half two times our money it might take three or four years but you know if you grow really quickly it comes back faster if you grow slower it comes back slower and that five percent of your revenue is really important because cash flow is really important in a young business right you don't want to slurp all the money out on a monthly basis to pay for some debt um so it's just a slither of, of your of your revenue that's really interesting and i think what kind of stood out to me there was choosing what success looks like for you and it seems like in the v in vc land there's such high expectations and such high kind of growth expectations as well. And, and some of these companies, as we've seen with like um, companies like WeWork, for example, like the faster they grow, it's also the faster they burn sometimes. And I think that there is a lot of wisdom in this model of not trying to compound 100% every year, but try and build kind of a lasting business, which is something that it seems like you're trying to focus on with Tractor. Yeah, there's, um, there's kind of that, like I alluded to before, you know, it feels like that in the tech sector, there's this sentiment that like you're venture backed and important or you're not. And I just don't think it's as binary as that. Like, I mean, there's some very shitty tech businesses, let's be clear, but there's this bit in the middle where people are building solid businesses. I've got them in my portfolio. You know, I've got them where they just consistently grow. And interestingly enough, if you've got a nice consistent compounding growth, then time becomes your friend, right? as long as you're not going to run out of money, like, you know, how compounding works, you know, I think it's Charlie Munger or Buffett said, you know, the, the eighth wonder of the world is compounding interest. Right. And SaaS companies where if you've got low churn and you've got customers coming in, you wait long enough, like the beast gets hard to stop. Right. Um, but as soon as you take other people's money, that's taken other people's money and they've made promises and, and timelines attached to that, it compresses everything. So venture is all about compressing everything to go really fast. You might go forever, but that first bit is all about going very quickly. Um, we think that there's some run by founders. So if you get the right capital and the right founders who go, you know, what we want here is, is we look after our staff. We look after our customers. You know, we don't put our company into a state where there's this binary success status. Like if we don't, you know, we need to raise more money because the bank account's almost empty and you get to this bit where you're done. But, you know, we sort of run behind our revenue curve and, you know, it, it's so fascinating talking to some of our founders who, who are, were bootstrapped until Tractor came along and they hang out with other VC-backed founders and they were saying, you know, like, they just think about different things we think about. We think about hitting our target so we can hire that person to hopefully hit a slightly larger target next quarter. And a lot of the time they're just thinking about how they raise the next round. Like what do we need to do to get to the point where we can raise the next round so we don't run out of money so we can get the valuation up. And it's just a bunch of people who aren't geared up to do that. They either know they've ever been inside the beast and seen it happen and just like, nope, that's not for me. Or they're just like, that's genuinely not how I want to run my day. <laughs> and, and, you know, they're okay. They're our kind of people.
Could you give an, us an example of a company in your portfolio that you think like really represents this model well? Sure. There's a, um, our third, very first investment, um, yeah. a husband and wife team um, called Ben and Noel from teamgage.com. So teamgage.com are in Adelaide. Uh, they run a really great platform to help um, staff, uh, help teams uh, understand what's going on during times of transition and, and sort of report on it and create a whole bunch of actions so that teams that are um, shifting and doing organisational change um, can, can do, it, do it well and do it smoothly. They have really good customers, a lot of government customers, a lot of big businesses. Um, and they did actually, interesting enough, they did Techstars in Adelaide the first time Techstars came to, to Australia. And they were like, like shining light, got a couple of term sheets and went, no, that's not for us. They just went back to work, um, you know, kept growing nice and steadily. Uh, I, I met them, spent plenty of time with them. Um, and it was a point where they got to, where they're like, you know, we've got, um, we need it, well, we've got a government grant. Well, we shorted out a government grant, um, but it needed matched funding. So they needed to get extra match funding and they, and, you know, traditionally you'd go and sell equity, right? You do an angel round or whatever. And they're like, we just don't want to. So the tractor funding was their match funding. Um, and, and ever since then, it's, it's been amazing. You know, they, they were cash flow neutral. Like they, they had money in the bank, but you know, every, every month was sort of, you know, just sort of teetering along, but growing nicely. Now all of a sudden they've got all these extra money in the bank and, and the things we're thinking about is more around how do we, um, unlock those founders. So how do we help them hire that level of people to allow them to elevate up to think about the business on a, on that sort of macro level instead of being on the weeds, instead of worrying about like the timing of payroll and stuff. Look, to be clear, running a tech startup, no matter how you're funded, you're in hard mode all the time, right? Like you're either bootstrapped and you've got no money and you're growing it only as quick as you can and you've got no money to sort of push the needle further. Or you've got a ton of money in your bank account because you raised from some people, but the expectations are through the roof. Like there is no easy way to do this. You just different, different, you know, flavors of hard mode. Um, so, you know, we're trying to sit in the middle there and go, look, bootstrapped and constraints that come with it, you know, breed, you know, breed some interesting solutions. Um, maybe there's a way to get some capital and some advice in there um, and to help you grow. And the advice part is really important. So track the ventures, revenue-based investing consists of the revenue-based financing we spoke about, Plus our team earns a very small amount of equity, earns a very small amount of equity. We're talking one to 2% over the first 12 months that we have that company in our portfolio. And if they don't like us, they can fire us. It's got a 30 day to close. If we're not adding value, tell us to go away. Um, so the reason being is because these founders who all of a sudden have an influx of money, they actually may not know what to do with it because it's such a new concept. And the problem with advice in technology is you either have, or advice in general in business, you've either got venture advice, which is like, cool, you've got all this money and here's all your metrics. And, and it's not really about running profitable or anything. It's about driving growth, right? And growth is the main metric. And the way, the way you spend that capital is directly coupled to growth, which is directly coupled to valuation, which is directly coupled to raising your round. We've got small businesses advice, you know, fish and chip shops and hairdressers and, you know, and then the type of people, people that advise those companies. And then you've got in the middle here, you've got a business that's potentially, you know, it's certainly scalable from a, you know, it's, it's not a time and material type business, but the advice is sort of one of these two weird camps where we really love sitting here in the middle. We've been in both sides of these things. We've recently been in, in the you know, high growth stuff. So as they move from, growing nicely to maybe growing quicker because they've got the new capital and we've unlocked them a little bit, then, you know, we can sort of slide up and down that scale with them. 
and a lot of the people who are who are back tractor itself are also you know um very much in that sort of high growth scene as well so like we've got all these people around us that are really really leaning into help um that, that's super interesting um i think it i think that model takes some time to get your head around um but i think it's proven to be successful and i think we'll see a lot more of it in the future um matt something that i want to ask you when you mentioned SaaS businesses is is there any trends that you see coming to fruition um in the next few years or just within technology in general or potentially businesses you'd like to see built. Yeah, it's um, it, it's it's kind of like um, it feels like we're either bundling everything together or unbundling everything. You know, we're, we're doing like lots of little niches, and a lot of the tractor companies are, are you know they look niche, right? Um, so our latest investment is a company called Martialytics, and they make a SaaS platform for martial arts studios. All right, you're like, okay, that sounds kind of weird. It turns out they have thousands of customers around the world, the global, like in heaps and heaps of countries. And, you know, there's a bunch of these behemoths in the sort of health health studio space, like mind, body and stuff, whatever. And they do everything for everybody. But these guys have got stuff like your belt grading, you know, module that shows you how to go from white belt to black belt, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and so I think that... Um, Customers or um, business customers are expecting better from their software now. You know, they've all used their phones and have beautiful UX and UI. Um, and, you know, the, so you can go very well with a well-built specific SaaS app or, you know, or in a pay-by-the-month app, whether it's an app or whether it's a web app, to help these businesses do things really well. Um, I really like, um, and I've been, it's, it's unrelated to track Ventures, but ag tech is something that really, like, excites me it's, it's the kind of thing it's it's actually not um so we did we lived in the country on on 65 acres um and my my, my neighbors were all farmers and the thing i know about farmers is um they spent a lot of time grinding like they spent a lot of time not farming they spent a lot of time driving around looking at shit and monitoring things and doing stuff that is not what a farmer should be doing um and so technology is just like i imagine a the farmer in the future is sitting in front of like nine big, beautiful monitors with, you know, and, and they should be responding to exceptions rather than, you know, doing the normal stuff. Like why would I have to drive around? I shouldn't have to drive around every single paddock I own and check every single pump I have and, and understand, you know, have to go out and look at it to, to observe this stuff. So the amount of technology that that happens, and I think there's an interesting um, byproduct of, of becoming more a tech enabled farm. And that is, um, succession planning. So, you know, my neighbors had young kids when I moved in there and they were teenagers when I left. Teenagers didn't really want to run the farm. They're like, dad, that was like hard work. Oh my gosh, he's got the computer program. Like Matt, like he seems to enjoy it. I'm like, I sit on my ass all day writing code. Um, like maybe, the, so they've got a problem. They're like, oh, I've got this really big farm with thousands and thousands of sheep and the kids aren't interested. Maybe if there was more tech involved, it's actually something that could, you know, help solve that problem. So, you know, there are a couple of things that I, that I think about a lot, but in reality, um, you know, the thing I really want to see is founders building businesses that, um, that they, they really just want to see um, go for a long time. You know, um, there's a couple of my portfolio just like, this is the company I'm going to be doing for 20 years. Like, well, I'm just happy to do this. This is, I don't have this ambition of, of, of something happening and I have to go for something else. I'm just happy just to keep going like this. And that's a, a function of, building the right team, solving the right problem. And, you know, the customers are happy to pay for it. 
Yeah, that's awesome. And it's interesting considering that SaaS trend because I think we're seeing that in a lot of industries are sort of unbundling in a sense where you've got these big platforms across industries, very hard to compete on a platform perspective. But if you sort of create a niche that does one thing really well, like what MindBody did and like that martial arts app, they can be really, really successful. So I think that we're going to see that in different areas as well, not just the SaaS, but also then how many, how many platforms can the individual use? Well, they can still have the same amount of platforms because they're so niche. They might just need one specific mm. platform. But I'm, t- I'm thinking more subscription-based because like, yeah. I think people are going to get sick of subscribing to stuff. Well, right? that's so, another yeah. problem in itself because some businesses have like 20 yeah. subscriptions. Oh, I mean, like, like there's a line item in our, in our panel for subscriptions. Like, like, they add up, you know, they, they literally do. But, however, at least in B2B land, as opposed to people like you and I, like, you know, we'll pay for Netflix, but I don't want to pay for 10 Netflixes, right? You know, you sort of get death by a thousand SaaS cuts. Um, in business, it happens as well, but at least usually you can marry one of them back to some sort of process improvement or some sort of, you know, ROI, basically. All these things, you know, zero my accounting platform, absolutely fundamental, never turning that thing off, right? Slack becomes fundamental when you plug everything into it and we've got all kinds of bits and pieces that run through it. You know, something, you, you, which is why it's really important that, um, uh, you know, the companies that I like to talk to is like, are you critical? Like martial analytics is critical for these guys to run their business. So even in COVID when, you know, he's like, ah, oh, it's sad because we lost a bunch of customers. They didn't lose because they didn't like martial analytics. They lose because they lost their entire business and didn't have any money to pay for it anymore. But, you know, it's already coming back again. Um, so there's a, it's just like, I can't run my business without this thing, as opposed to every now and then I use this thing, maybe sometimes I'm not going to pay for it all the time. You know, there's that sort of, um, uh, ROI monthly payments. If, if I'm, if I'm paying something for monthly and I'm not using it and I haven't used it for three months, I'm going to cancel it. Right. Yeah. And Matt, a question that I'm really dying to ask is that you've seen business from so many different perspectives. Like you've been a technologist, you've, founded businesses, been an employee, angel event, investor, coach, venture, sorry, not venture, early stage investor, got at that time. What have you found, seeing all these different perspectives, what are some of the biggest struggles that face startups, especially tech startups, from being successful in their own right? Um, there's a lot of people who spend a lot of time comparing themselves and trying to do, you know, trying to basically raise money. Like, the amount of times I've seen founders like pretzel themselves into a shape to try and create a, what they think is a venture backable company and where they could have, you know, reduced the surface area of the problem they're trying to solve, which reduces the serious of there as a solution, which reduces the cost and time to build it and just get out there and talk to customers. Right? Like it feels to me like people are more excited to go raise money than they are to actually do the work. And there's a whole bunch of irony at the moment because my entire job, attractive at the moment is to make sure we don't run out of capital to deploy into other ones. So I'm on that path. However, you know, I've got a really amazing team who are doing a bunch of the process and operational and, and funnel and all the kind of stuff we do, which I'm still involved in. But you know, like there is a point where if you're getting a bunch of those rejections, like it's usually because the people investing in you, are, you know, they don't have that conviction on something, you, the problem, the solution, the whatever. So I think um, even for someone who doesn't code nowadays, you should be able to solve the majority of some of these problems, which a lot of the problems are just workflow. They're like the information munging, right? You know, you've got some weird information, a stupid process, and I'm going to give you a 
better information, a slightly better process, and you're going to pay me for it. And, you know, th there's things where if you extrapolate them out over time, can save businesses a fortune. So it really is, to come back to your, your question, you know, what do startups do wrong? It feels to me like the desire to have a bank account full of money is greater than the desire to help a customer solve a problem sometimes. And it's just like startup theater is, is a, is a, it's not a pleasant place to be. Like it's, it's just a waste of everybody's time. So go and build something and put it in front of a customer. And then in my, in my in track the land, charge them for it. You know, if you're solving a real problem, a business will pay you for it. If you can correlate it back to saving time or money or, um, or creating time or money, you know, creating, you know, creating sales or saving on the bottom line, you know, do the hard work, do that. That's a really good perspective. Really important. Yeah. Um, Matt, before we move into the quick fire rounds, I mean, another question that I was actually dying to ask as well is coming back to your angel investments. What, when do you, what does like success look like for you? And when do you know it's time to cash in the chips with your investments? If you do. Yeah, I do. So, um, you know, uh, when you invest into a, an early stage technology company, it's usually primary capital, which means the money that I put in goes to the company. Um, sometimes along the way, especially if the company's doing quite well, um, the demand for people that want to invest in the company and the desire for the founders to sell their shares is in equal. There's more demand than there is supply of shares, at which point in time, sometimes some of the early investors, including the founders, can sell some of their shares to these new people. So you can get, so the, the, the new owners own a chunk of the company, but it doesn't dilute everybody or it does, but you get to choose it. That's called a secondary sale. So I've taken secondary sales on, on, on probably five or six times along the way. Um, and for the ones that are going very well, it's a little bit of a, it's a weird spot to be in because the only reason people want to buy your shares is because things are going really well. But as an angel investor, um, I've kind of got a rule that if you haven't made an angel investment in six months, you've got to give your badge back. Like it's a, it's a thing you've got to do quite often because all of a sudden, if, it, if time goes too long, you, you're tempted to write a bigger check. And if you're writing a bigger check, you're going to worry too much about it. And then, and then you're going to stress about it. And you're going to be a pain in the ass to the founder that you've written into. So you've got to do lots of little checks all the time to keep your badge. That's, that's, that's my rule. That's matter's rule of angel investing, at least once every six months, if not more. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, um, so I will take some and I have done it. And the nice thing about that is that, you know, I, I was not super cashed up. So these secondaries allowed me to go and create more, you know, place more bets into more founders. So, you know, that, which allowed me to keep my cadence up, which means I didn't have to give my badge back. So, um, uh, so it, it becomes a point of, uh, I think you just tear it up, cut it up like a credit card or something. I don't know. Um, I'll take so your punch next time, all right? <laughs> I'll give it to someone else. I'll give it to you, man. Uh, so what actually I think happens is after a while, when you get in it long enough and you have a few of these, and maybe as you get older as well, maybe a function of your, your period in life, you maybe don't need the money necessarily. It's like, oh, there's an opportunity to take some, but no, it's going well. Remember, someone's trying to buy my shares off me because it's going well, and I don't have anything necessarily to do with it. I'll just let it ride. So a lot of my stuff now, like a lot of the opportunities come up is, is you go the opposite because the other opposite is is following on right which is like there's another round you either put more money in to keep your percentage of the company or or you get diluted so you've got these two options if it's going really well you've probably got an option to put more money in or you got an option to take some money out um so we're usually more the other way now i'm like oh this is going really well i'll put some more money in because i want to not get squished out on the way i want to maintain my ownership percentage so it's this weird spot where 
in the early days, you're like, holy shit, you know, this 50 grand I'm going to get back is going to be super important to me right now because I've got some bills to pay and I'd love to make a different investment. And after a while, it sort of flips the other way. It's like, ah, no, I'm just going to let it ride. Yeah. Is that, I don't know if that was useful. No, very, very useful. Like, like we said, we're interested in starting. So for angel investing, especially on equity crowdfunding platforms, which accept pretty small checks. Um, and yep. that's very, very useful for us. Um, I'm imagining Adam in your bin mat trying to piece together the, the <laughs> special angel batch. Look, so we're going to go on to our quick fire round of questions now. So this is just where we ask you a bunch of questions. Um, you've got around 30 seconds to answer each one. Are you ready for them? Sure. Cool. What's one of your favorite books and why? Um, yeah, it's a pretty consistent answer. There's a really cool book called Turn the Ship Around uh, by David Marquette. Um, it's a really great, um, really short narrative read management book around uh, and, uh, empowering your team to make decisions because they're closer to the information. So push the authority down to the information and then let that, um, let the intent surface up. So, you know, they intend to do this. You can ask questions, but that's how it works. It's not permission-based, it's intent-based and I really like it. Awesome. Haven't heard of that one. So check that out. Um, what's one of your favorite podcasts and why? Um, my friend Rohit does the Startup Playbook podcast, which I'm sure you know. Actually, um, Rohit as well. Awesome, yeah. So Ro, Rohit's, I've been on there a few times, but it's not about me. He just gets some really amazing people. Um, and um, I used to, he worked with me at Amazon for a while as well. Um, and I really like, he, he does some pretty serious um, research nowadays um, when he brings his guests on. And I, I think it's a, it's a really, um, it ends up with the quality sort of line of questioning. Yeah, I've always thought that if you're into startups, that is literally equivalent to a university education. Mm. It's a great podcast. Next question, mm. who's an inspirational figure uh, that you've never met that's inspired you during your life? That was a, yeah, that was a hard one. Um, I, I identify now uh, as, a, as a leader. I, I, you know, I, I, enjoy, I enjoy being a leader. Um, it's funny, I'm not really that into, you know, US politics, but, you know, the stark contrast between an Obama and a Trump, I think, you know, someone like Obama, um, just a clear thinker um, and, and calm, calm, calm leadership under pressure. I think it's a skill. That I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm a, I'm a wartime CEO at the moment. Like, I'm, I'm pretty good when things are going well. I don't know what happens when I shoot out the other side, but he felt like he was a um, pretty calm guy that I'd have a great conversation with. Awesome. Yeah, we get that one a fair bit. And I, I think his book also shows that. So if you haven't read it yet, I highly recommend. Um, list. Question, what's one of your favorite hobbies and why? And it can't be anything computer related. Yeah. No computer related hobbies. Away from work <laughs> or computers. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, yeah. so I play music. So I've, I've played bass guitar my whole life. So I quite often on the weekends, I'll, I'll play that. And before COVID, I was jamming with a bunch of mates, which sort of got shut down recently. But um. That's certainly what I do. Um, you know, I just play along to songs that I like, and I have an acoustic bass which actually is hanging on the wall in the in the, the lounge room. The reason being is, if it's not there, you won't play it. So it usually hangs around up here with me, and I can just pick it up and play. And don't have to plug it in. There's no cables, so I bought myself an acoustic bass, so it's well, always there. I, I hear about so many technologists that grow up um, playing with computers, but also being really into music as well. Like I, I just noticed on another podcast, it was Spotify's co-founder. I think it was Daniel Heck. Yeah, I was really well. into music, and I, I hear this all the time: music and computers, which is an interesting mix. 
I remember um, in my very first computer was like an, the first IBM computer, like a, a Tandy 1000. It had a, a, like a MIDI program where it had, you know, all the notes and you could like program in the notes. And I'd had sheet music that I had because I was playing piano when I was younger. And I was literally like using the mouse to copy the music in and then hit play and play it. And like, so I don't know, it was one of those things where they go hand in hand. I've also, you know, I'm not allowed to talk about my, my computer related stuff, but you know, I have, um, MIDI MIDI keyboard and a MIDI sequencer, so I can. I've been doing making some beats in Ableton lately, but I'm not allowed to tell you about that one because it's attached. <laughs> no, that's cool. We'll, we'll allow it. Matt, Matt do you work <laughs> at a standing desk out of curiosity? Yeah, I do. Um, I um, the time that my semi-retirement time between post Amazon and pre-tractor was about nine months, and I sat on the couch right there. And um, then, then COVID lockdown came along in Melbourne. And I'm like, I can't, like, I'm broken. I need to do something. So I've got a fully standing desk that you can't, like, I adjust it to do one of my other hobbies, which is uh, uh, racing with my racing setup. Um, but I've got it, like, it takes me 10 minutes to reset it into standing, into sitting mode. So I'm just, I just stand there so all the time. Sort of racing? Video games. Oh, video. oh, you know, like, you know, you can video game racing, you know, oh, full, okay. Logitech, full, full Logitech pedals, pedals set up, but it I'm takes me a while. you in a Formula One car for one <laughs> second. No, 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 no. Um, I, I do enjoy driving, but not that cars, no. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Um, so, Matt, this has been an awesome episode, and we'd like to try and finish off with just one key takeaway that you have for our audience of people in their early 20s trying to make a difference in their lives. Um, what, what would you have from all your experience? And a difference in the world. Oh, in, yeah, that's what I meant to say. <laughs> um. For me, you know, it's almost circling back to the start of the episode. Like it took me 40 years to realize that um, you can either, you can do one of two things. You can try and improve the stuff you're bad at, or you can double down on the stuff you're good at. And, you know, to, to double down on stuff you're good at requires you to have enough to check your ego enough to go, I'm bad at some stuff. And just go, I just, I'm bad at it. It doesn't really float my boat. Right? I'm just, I, I and, and that's not to say you can't do, a certain level of hygiene and everything, right? You, you need to do some of the grind and some of the shit work, but you don't have to do it forever. And what I've realized is that if you find that spot where you can do the stuff you're really, really good at and you like and actually create value for other people around you, like life becomes so much easier. So like work and grind don't have to be tightly coupled. Um, if you can find eventually, if you can add enough value to the people around you doing the stuff that you really enjoy. Um, I, I think there's a function of time over there. Like it's, it's very hard to do when you're super early and you don't have a lot of value. Like you don't have the confidence to go, I know this stuff. Like I'm good with this stuff now. Just let me do that stuff. But I, I think there was a time in my early thirties where I could have done that. And I didn't. And it took me another decade to figure it out. So hopefully that's useful. Wonderful. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I really love that episode, Matt. Thanks for speaking with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having as, me. As a last, last question, as a technologist, um, why do you still write paper physical checks when you're making investments? Because I, I don't. <laughs> uh, it's, just, it's just a word. I don't do a check. Uh -huh. You know what a check is? If I sent you a check, that's me telling you I'm standing in line. That's like a, that's like a real dick move, right? If I sent you a check, like the founder, the last thing the founder should be doing is standing in line at a bank going, what do I do with this thing? We just find it hilarious how these like really high tech people still use the word check. Because it's just oh, yeah. so outdated, but people love to say it. Uh, uh, yeah, no, you know, the modern day equivalent of a check is stupid internet banking with its limits and not letting you move enough money around in one hit. Mind yeah. you, our tractor now that we're doing like big chunks of money, 
it's terrifying. Like I'm like, I'd, I'd rather write it out on a check. At least I didn't put an actual extra zero on there and send it, right? Like, you know, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, Matt. We really enjoyed it. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Cheers. See you guys.